Hi, I'm Stacey Schumacher-Rowan, Editor-in-Chief of Hospitality Design Magazine, with HD's What I've Learned podcast. Hotelier Jason Pomeranks cherishes the creative process and pushes it to its limits to redefine the hotel experience. If a collaboration is too easy, he says, it probably isn't good. In the early 2000s, Jason co-founded the industry-disrupting Thompson Hotels brand, which revolutionized hotel design and has since expanded around the world. Jason is also behind the recently opened theater-centric The Civilian in New York, a natural fit for his design approach, which he describes as cinematic. When entering a building for a new project, he envisions how people will enjoy the space, watching it play out like a movie and using it as inspiration and planning. Hi, I'm here with Jason. Jason, thanks so much for joining me today. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Of course. So good to see you. Um, Okay, so we always start at the beginning of this podcast. Where did you grow up? As a child, I grew up in Queens, New York. And then in my teen years, my family moved to the Upper East Side. And I've been, for the most part, a New Yorker ever since with little interludes into west coast and and london and some other places but i'm a but a bit of a new yorker through and through did you was there an early inkling that you know that you had a love of design or any early memories of hospitality that might lead towards you know the career that you have you know i was the youngest of three children by a significant amount so by the time i was you know coming into my you know, preteen years, my my parents had had like enough of the traditional, like I'm going to take you to camp and I'm going to take you here, and I mean, so I just traveled with them, right? And it was, you know, at the time, seemingly um, odd for you know, ten, eleven, twelve year old to travel with groups of adults, like in all these places. But you know, in retrospect, it really helped form. Um, this perception at such a young age of, you know, going to hotels and, you know, these interesting restaurants and experiences that just you normally wouldn't be exposed to until you were much older. Um, and it kind of redefined what was normal for me, you know, in like the perception of um, hospitality and engagement and, and something kind of odd happened. So you know, I finished high school and I was applying to colleges and, you know, this is a little bit of, of, of inside baseball, but I, I was applying to various schools, right? And I had a very competitive high school and we, most of the kids went to Ivy League schools. So we, everybody was sort of looking for an edge. And I decided I was going to apply to Cornell Hotel School because, not because at the time I knew that I had a passion for hotels, because I thought that somehow you know, I had the type of personality that could, you know, kind of engage. And I went up for an interview um, with the dean. Some, somehow I, I, I managed an interview with the dean. And he just asked me a question I was completely unprepared for. He goes, well, why do you want a career in hotels? And I guess at the time I hadn't at least consciously thought about it. But I just organically said, well, you know, hotels have stayed the same since fundamentally in the 50s when you know Hilton Marriott kind of evolved and became these international players and they brought America to the world but it was all about standardization it wasn't about individuals and and creating unique experiences and I think now particularly with aesthetic like we need to just change and and be liberated from this tyranny of beige and things and I went on this rant that I didn't really know that ended up being my entire career right like so 
which was really strange because it just kind of synthesized in that one moment of pressure. Um, now, you know, thankfully he was, and he was kind of shocked. Like he was sort of like, whoa, okay. Um, and, you know, in the end, for various reasons, I ended up going to NYU. I, I did get into Cointor now and, and went up there many times since then to kind of participate in programs. But, it, you know, I think from that moment, I realized, you know, that's what I want to do. And it became synthesized and all those kind of childhood experiences kind of came to the forefront and spent a lot of time kind of just evolving that, that aesthetic palette and, you know, studying. And, and I was fortunate enough very early in my career to meet, you know, kind of eccentric, slightly odd creative characters that for, to a degree mentored me you know, and spent hours and hours and hours kind of exposing me to things that a traditional professional relationship just doesn't have, right? So normally, you know, and anybody who's in the industry knows, like client goes in and, you know, you retain an architect or a designer or a creative director and you have a certain amount of hours together and you, you have a very specific job description. And I wasn't like that. A lot of people early in my career were just you know, savant tutors and, you know, couldn't even draw a straight line. And and I think that gave me the opportunity to develop my own perspective of um, how design was evolving in hotels and create my own look and not really be kind of locked in to what the trends were at the time. Right. Who were some of these early influencers in your life? What were some of your first roles? You know, definitely the... Two guys that were the most powerfully influential were, were Jim Walrod, who passed away a couple of years ago, who they used to call the furniture pimp because he wasn't a traditionally trained designer. Um, he got his initial creative experience. Another story that I always thought was, was bullshit and then actually validated to be true was that Jim, when he was a teenager, was applying for a job as a window dresser at Bloomingdale's. And just because he saw it in the paper and he needed a job. And on the way there, he stopped at Fiorucci to look around to get creative ideas. And he met Andy Warhol randomly. And he asked him, hey, kid, what are you doing? And he goes, well, I'm applying for this job. And they you know, gave him the whole story. So he goes, go tell them that you're going to put mannequins that all look like Andy Warhol. And the real Andy Warhol is going to go stand there. And apparently this happened, you know, and... Jim ended up working for Andy and became his gopher. And Andy taught him about furniture and art and artifacts. And that's how he kind of developed this network of underground, like furniture dealers and, you know, like back of warehouses where they had like all these antiques that you couldn't get. And Jim was very, very influential in kind of educating me on various periods of design and how they reflected what was contemporary and modern and, you know, how each period kind of intersected with the other. And the other gentleman was a, a guy named Stephen Klein who just died recently, who was a, a branding consultant who could not work a computer for the most part, you know, and, you know, had a, a, a library of old, you know, books and magazines that he actually got donated to a museum and he was also a savant that had incredible, uh, you know, visual library in his own mind of typefaces from the 1950s and, you know, fashion references and, you know, just cultural relevancy. 
and you know we'd sit for hours and talk about these things and and that helped form kind of the foundation that I, when i went in then to talk to the what now are the globally recognized like world famous designers i was armed with a certain amount of knowledge that other clients didn't have right because i had this sort of secret education that was going on in the background um, and i think ultimately that made me a better client and i think over the arc of my career it made better projects yeah how did you meet jim and steven like did you work with them and just knew them yeah them? i mean we had a, a mutual friend introduced steven to me to do a little bit of branding work for us when we first started with 60 thompson and he helped kind of redefine the original thompson logo and you know that was like how we started working together and jim was an introduction you know it, it, interestingly i don't actually even remember who was the 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 initial person who introduced us but we did end up collaborating on several projects right including a, a hotel that i did early in my career called guild hall and uh, ultimately 60 LES and my my homes uh, he did my my new york loft which you know has been published a bunch of times and he did my um la home in conjunction with a gentleman named brad dunning who's a very well-known mid-century expert um and we had some fun you know interesting experiences and, and i think uh you know over the years even when i was working with you know, globally recognized designers or creative agencies or, you know, big groups. I, I, I often still went back to them to kind of just bounce ideas around and, and, and see if my perspective was still, was still there. Did your mom and dad have a love for design? Were you surrounded by design early on or is that just something you found on your own? They had an appreciation for nice things, you know, but, it's, you know, in a, a genre that is completely unrelatable to what I do. You know, everything's sort of very Baroque and gilded and, and fancy. And, and that's the type of hotels and the type of restaurants we'd go to. So while it, it, it certainly didn't affect influence by actual aesthetic, I think just the appreciation of objects and, you know, craftsmanship and the idea of like, that a chair or a, a figurine or something has this history to it, you know, that I think became important as opposed to just like, this is disposable furniture. And, you know, when we get sick of it, we throw it out. Yeah. Were they in the creative fields? Do they work in anything design or hospitality related? Well, my father spent most of his career as a real estate developer, but mostly very traditional housing and, and, and multifamily and, um, and my mother's job was mostly to keep me out of trouble for and my brothers, you know, so, um, and thankfully they are, um, you know, still a good stopgap of whenever you think you're, you know, you know too much. They sort of remind you that like you're, you know, still 12 years old in some, some extent. Yes, that is their specialty, isn't it? <laughs> um, Okay, so you went to NYU. What were some of your first jobs out of college? Well, in college, yeah, I, I for a period of time, and you know, it's funny how small the world is. So, you know, I started to dabble in sort of nightlife and entertainment, and I actually used to throw parties at a place called Sticky Mike's Frog Bar, which ironically was owned by Josh Picard from 
from um, NoHo Hospitality that owns the Dutch and um, La Conde Verde and A.B. Rosen from RFR and his partners, uh, Michael Fuchs. So, and they were all super young and, you know, kind of, and this was a little club they had under a place called Time Cafe, which was, is now where Lafayette is. And that's kind of how I started to, you know, get into that world a little bit. And, and then, but I moved around, I worked at Bear Stearns, I, I did, I ended up going to law school, so I ended up practicing as an attorney for a while as well. Um, so I, I, you know, I wanted to get as much exposure, you know, the, the field of hotel development and operations is deeply complex, right? And, you know, you need to have weapons beyond just, you know, the knowledge of the pure hospitality aspect of it. So I, I wanted to kind of gather in as many skills as I could at that age. Um, so in many ways, it was very conflicting, you know, because, yes, I, I liked being, you know, kind of out there in the mix and, you know, creature of the night and going and experiment, traveling the world and, you know, seeing new places. But I also wanted the structure of all the skills that I would need to compete in this world. So you were saying that you got all these different experiences, right? So did Bear Stearns, went to law school. So what made you, or and then practice law, what made you ultimately decide to start um, Thompson Hotels? What was the idea and how did you make that actually happen? Because a lot of people have good ideas, but making it happen sure. is half the battle. Well, well in the year probably two of my legal practice, you know, it was pretty apparent that um, I really did not enjoy that part of the, you know, law school was nice in theory and intellectually stimulating, but it wasn't in practice what I wanted to do every day. Um, so I left in order to develop, basically. And, I, and I'm not sure we had a specific, because, you know, at the time, my older brothers and I talked about it a lot and, and our hold the family holdings had started to delve a little bit into hospitality, but more traditional, um, you know, Hilton's and airport hotels and, you know, some stuff in Manhattan that was like sort of a, you know, budget independent, but not to what we were going to do. So we decided that the real gap was there was something missing in the, you know, European model of small luxury hotels. And we wanted to find, you know, the right, site and really focus on that and there were a few starts and stops at a time we were first supposed to do a, a project called the downtown athletic club which is in the wall street area known mostly for giving out the heisman trophy uh and that you know ended up being we bought it and sold it and you know then we were going to do the hudson and we thought we were you know taking that and and somehow there was a back door that Ian Traeger somehow was able to do it. So in disappointment of not being able to execute that deal, we went for lunch in Soho and we parked in a parking garage and across the street there was a for sale sign on a little metal workshop on Thompson street that said for sale by owner called up and we bought it. And, you know, we, that became the site for 60 Thompson and, you know, it evolved from, you know, kind of an intimate, more of an in to something a bit, you know, bigger and and concept more bigger, something a little stronger. And it was very early in the evolution of lifestyle hotels at the time. What year um, is this? You're talking 1999 when we bought it. Okay. So the Mercer wasn't open yet. Soho Grand wasn't open yet. Or it was just about to open. 
Um, there was no W hotels, right? So this was very early on. So we opened it with somewhat modest expectations of just doing something. And, you know, we, we, we learned a lot along the way. We brought on a designer named Thomas O'Brien, who from Aero Studios, uh, who was starting to evolve and uh, partnered with uh, Jean-Marc Omar and his team from Indochine, so for food and beverage. So, we, you know, we put together a very strong team. But I don't think we ever had the vision that this was going to become an international brand, right? So we opened right before 9-11. Literally, the, our first our opening party was September tenth, two thousand one, and we had this crazy party with uh, British Magazine and all these celebrities were there. And I was like, "Wow, I could do this. This is fun." And next day was nine eleven, so it was a you know horrible struggle, obviously for a few months. But ultimately, the hotel resonated, and it was a big success, thankfully. And from that was born other right. So we decided to develop more, and we did one on and other funds and, and developers came to us and said, hey, you know, I want you to do this for me. And that's the first time we thought about being a brand and a national management company and like building this engine. And within a few years, we went from one project to like 13 or 14. And, you know, so it was a big growth spurt. And then there were various other, uh, you know, we merged with another company and then sold part of the company to Hyatt. And, you know, it, it, got, it got big business complicated later on. But along the way, you know, the opportunity, I'm very fortunate to have worked on some really amazing projects, like stuff that was industry changing. Um, and, you know, it's that fabric of the total arc of the, you know, that time period is, is uh, when I look back on it, is, is made me, you know, I, I think it's interesting as to what it, it foundation i built for kind of the next chapter yeah was there one of the hotels that really stands out in your mind as you know one of these amazing projects or uh, that was really what you wanted thompson to be i mean i know it's hard to pick your favorite child but um you know was there one that you want to talk about that that you think really defined what thompson should be and was you know the first one obviously resonated because that started the brand and you know and i and i think what probably i'm most proud of is today that hotel's open 20 years and it's still on the tip of the spear of you know lifestyle hotels globally i mean as far as nightlife as far as you know where it's rated from a room product from service culture from aesthetic and and that's what i often say to people in the industry it's like you know it's not that hard to be the hot place for six months but talk to me after 20 years if you're the hot place, and then we'll see how how great your decisions were at the time. And there's been a lot of, you know, hotels that have burned hot and, ch and short, you know, in that period. So I think that's probably what I'm most proud of, you know, of, of the career. But I think there were a lot of firsts. I think we were um, really early to go to Hollywood and create, you know, the Roosevelt, which was this chaotic I'm not sure it was what we envisioned Thompson to be, but it was its own like animal, right? And you know, I I definitely did not anticipate that it was going to become this global phenomenon as it had when I went. I mean, I showed up there, I was, I don't know, 29 and you know, just thinking I knew what I was doing. And, you know, all of a sudden it's like this crazy convergence of celebrity and 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 LA and glamour and you know, so that was an incredible experience. I think it was great to do our first international project in Toronto. 
I think the Beekman was an amazing building tool. You know, you once in your career do you ever get to kind of restore a building like the Beekman? Um, and a lot of people can do that extremely badly. So there was a lot of pressure to do that well, you know, and I, so I'm very proud that that came out, even though it's not one of our collection anymore. You know, I, I think it, 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 it's, I'm proud that it, it, it held true. Um, I think our host first hotel in London, Europe was, was very exciting. Mexico, you know, doing Cabo as our first resort was exciting. So there were so many kind of pioneering moments as a hotelier that you get to kind of keep moving forward and, and doing new things, right? You're not just doing the same thing. Um, and I'm not so sure that as any independent brand could start today and, and kind of do that much and still have it be um, kind of groundbreaking in each step. You know, it's just, I'm not sure that the industry is, is, is accepting of that anymore and, and maybe just be too much. Right. You know, and I think that's how the industry is, is changing. And um, the, the industry is a little jaded, right? So, so with each opening, it, the public and, and, and the media is looking for some value proposition that's different than what so many other brands are doing, right? And, and early on, you know, everything you were doing was groundbreaking. I mean, I, any hotel I opened had four pages and W or Vanity Fair or da, 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 just because it was so such an exciting time and so different to do the kind of things that we were doing. Do you think part of this um, jadedness and competitiveness is due to the crowdedness of the marketplace today? For sure. I mean, look, what happened was in about 2008, you know, in boardrooms across the country and Hilton and Marriott and, you know, various other companies, they said, if, you know, guys like the Pomerantz brothers, like from Queens, New York, can figure out how to do all of this, we have to be able to figure it out. So they threw a tremendous amount of energy and capital into trying to capture the lifestyle sector. And you have the you know, growth of, of W, of Indigo, of, of, of Dishon, of, you know, I can go on and on. I mean, there's, so, you know, some of those are, are better executions than others. Some of the internally born brands did not succeed as opposed to the ones that were acquired by acquisition. Um, but there's just a lot of value. Right. So, you know, when if you wanted to have this type of experience, you had a limited number of offerings in a major city. Now you have many, many more. Right. So it, it, saturation is part of it, but also everything else has changed. Yep. Technology has changed. You know, the way people travel, what they consider luxury has changed. You know, it, you have to be able to evolve and how people find hotels and brand loyalty and how that's acquired is very different today than it was, you know, even 10 years ago. Yeah, for sure. And let's go back to what you're saying to have the um, Thompson Soho for 20 years. How have you evolved it, right? Because you can't just stay status quo. I mean, you constantly have to tweak, you know, not totally change, but tweak. But has that been part of your, I know you've rethought F&B and the rooftop and, you know, different partners. I mean, do you think that's part of your success is that you haven't sat on your laurels and you're always trying to continue to improve or rethink, especially with how things have changed over two decades? I, I think that's part of it. I think, you know, a great hotel over time is very much like a stately home, right? Like you don't just, 
you know, if you have this incredible, you know, turn of the century mansion and, you know, it, you, you buy it and it's, you know, in its kind of original condition and needs to be either restored or whatever, you don't just like rip it out. And then in the 80s, put like a bunch of Formica in. And then in the early 2000s, put a bunch of black lacquer. And then like, you know, it just like, you don't, you, you evolve like stages of it, right? So like a stately home has sort of components of each period that it goes through and it, and it moves. And I think hotels are very much the same, right? So that's on the physical side, right? So like that way your design and your aesthetic becomes somewhat timeless and you don't become locked in a time capsule, right? Look, you know, some of the, one of the reasons I was so enamored by the hotel businesses, I walked into some of the early Intrager hotels like the Delano and, you know, and, you know, you were getting punched in the stomach because it was like, wow, what is this? What is this Philip Stark, you know, kind of craziness? But, you know, to an extent that became prisoner later on in, in that career, as great as it is, you know, over time, people's taste changed, right? And, and it, it, it didn't fit. So, so turning that into, you know, the next version of that became challenging. So I think it's hard for any, you know, successful aesthetic to evolve. And I think that's why today some of the most successful hotels cannot be pigeonholed into a design description they're mostly eclectic right because there are various periods some's vintage some's new color not color like it becomes very personalized and that's very very much in an effort not to become dated quickly so i think that's on the physics side but you definitely need to evolve your offerings right if you're changing your service culture you're changing your f&b offerings you know we at a certain point took two of the most popular places in New York and we just had to change the concept because we just thought that they ran their course, right? So instead of having a Thai restaurant, we were in a French restaurant. Instead of having, you know, a hotel bar, we decided to kind of go into this like art field sort of border between nightlife and lounge. And, uh, and sometimes you have to tweak again, right? I mean, it doesn't always work exactly the first time. So it's very organic. And it's painful, right? And I often tell this to people in the business, like, why do you have to make it so hard? Because like, you know, you want to do a collab with, you know, this different, you know, company and they're, you know, not prepared because it's not painful. That means it's just like, not, if it's that easy, it's probably not that good. Right. And, and, you know, I know that sounds ignorant, but the creative process is inherently painful. Right. And if you want to take that extra step, Right. You have to be willing to put in the work. You have to be willing to deal with eccentric personalities. It's not regimented in a boardroom format. And that's why even today, independence can still create product that stands above what I think the larger corporations can because they're willing to take that extra mile. Right. Things are not decided by committee. You know, I, I often say that this business from our end is 80% traditional hotel you know, economic service culture, you know, what you learn in hotel school, but 20% is voodoo, right? It's completely subjective. It's completely out there. You can go right or you could go wrong. And it often comes down to one person's perspective as to where culture is moving. And that is a risky proposition. For sure. Is there one part of the process you like the best? Is it finding the spot? Is it that initial concept of seeing it come to life? You know, the early stages are the most exciting, clearly, right? Because you have limitless attention, right. right? And all the ideas are possible, right? You know, it's like once you're in the the heat of construction and building, everything sort of becomes a bit more realistic and a bit more harsh. But 
um, you know, the white paper stage, because I, I approach projects very cinematically, right? So like, let's just say we're looking at a piece of property or an old building. You know, I, I don't see the whole project. I see a very, very tight scene, like almost like a movie that pans out. So you see one little corner and then everything else starts to fill in. And that's the part that gets my juices going. That's the exciting part. Um, and look, I like dealing with eccentric creative personalities, right? So like I often say when I'm dealing with institutional investors and funds is my chief skill is being translate a little crazy into corporate America, right? Like, so I'm the bridge yeah. that kind of makes that all work. Um, but you need that, right? You need that. You can't, you can't sanitize everything to the point. Um, otherwise, you know, I think the guests can sense that, you know, and, and I think we, we, we lose our opportunity to be, you know, mirrors of, of sort of cultural progression. You know what I mean? Cause, cause what happens is often with, with the more corporate driven hotels, you're, you're, you're looking in the rear view mirror of what culture is doing. I think you know, as individual hoteliers, we're creating or help reflecting where it, it's going to go. Right. And I think that is the major difference. Yeah. And you've worked with amazing people, you said, like Studio Collective, Tara Bernard, Martin Brzezinski. I mean, I could keep going on and on of David Rockwell most recently. What do you look for in a collaborator? And what do you think makes for a successful collaboration where you can, you know, create this magic that you, you've been able to create? Well, you know, clearly, you know, because great designers doesn't, don't mean that they're great for a specific project. It's not one size fits all, right? There's, they're human and they have perspective and they have a taste level and they have background. So the certain, pl- certain projects are better suited for a certain type of design firm. But even once you're there, um, you know, look, I think as a client for me, the openness to collaboration is very important. You know, it's not something where I want a presentation and say, okay, I want ABC and goodbye. But it's also passion. Like if I sense that a designer is not excited about this particular project, I'd rather find an unknown that is like looking to prove themselves and, you know, has a skill set and take a risk on them and do it. Because passion is, and going back and looking at it again, and, you know, you know, some of the best discussions we've had you know, over the years have been about like one detail that like, you know, you get into an argument of, no, I want it to be this. I want it to be a beveled edge. I want it. And you get into these crazy discussions about, you know, tiny things, but you need that passion in order to have the project be great. And, yeah. and I think that's probably the most important thing to me. Uh, even today, as I talk, you know, and I'm, I'm always trying to find who the next person is going to be, or the next firm is going to be. Um, and, you know, that, that's what I look for the most, right? And, and I, I, you know, it's funny. I also like to see someone that says, you know, I have a distinct perspective and style, but I really like and respect what, you know, A, B, and C are doing, right? And I'm the same way with food and beverage too. Like some people become so myopic that it's like only what they're doing is right. And, and I'm not like that as a hotelier. I love to go to other people's hotels. I like to see what they're doing. Like people often see me in like a restaurant or in a bar in somebody else's hotel. They're like, why are you here? I'm like, what do you mean why I'm here? I'm here because I want to have a good time and I want to see what's going on. And yeah. I know how hard this is to do. So I, I, I appreciate that. And in my mind, there's a real esprit de corps that should happen amongst 
the individuals in the industry and we should all be helping each other um, meet that challenge. And it's not always that way. I think I'm maybe unique in that perspective, but, but it's, um, I, I enjoy seeing other people kind of push the boundary a little bit. Yeah. Has there been one very memorable hospitality experience for you, either as a kid or, you know, later in life that has stuck with you? I think traveling to Asia the first time and just really experiencing it like as a different planet, you know, in its aesthetic, in like its service culture, in its landscape, you know, it's so, you know, and I had the opportunity to kind of bop around into, you know, different parts and you know, cities and, 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 you know, remote areas and, you know, that, you know, I mean, I think anybody in hospitality and certainly anybody on the design end of hospitality needs to experience that depth, you know, and you can say the same about Europe too, but like, I take that a little for granted, but there's, there's more of a synergy between, you know, the U S and Western Europe, but, but Asia is a different planet and, and it's, it's really eye opening. Is there a, a travel wish on your bucket list that you haven't gotten to yet? Well, right before COVID, I was supposed to take a deep dive into Japan. Oh. You know, I, I had a like a three week, like extensive, heavy duty Japanese trip planned with, you know, starting in Tokyo and kind of going around the country. So that's as soon as things kind of get back to normal, a little trickier now with my baby. But like, you know, it's it's um, that would be probably first and foremost. Uh, and, I, you know, I'm embarrassed to say I've not yet been to Japan. And, yeah. and, you know, I've had a few few starts and stuff, but that's that's kind of high on the list. All right. So let's talk about your newest endeavor and what you're up to um, with civilian hotels. Um, and the first, is it going to be a brand? First of all, I should ask that before I ask the next question. Um, well, but is, if it's, if it's successful, it'll be a brand. If okay, it's good. not. <laughs> and it's a one-off and it's great. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. You know, I say that about most hotels, right? It's like, it's a, you know, it's, it, it would be nice to be a brand, but you've got to actually prove the first one. I love it when I see presentations of brands that have like, 21 locations pegged on a map but have no hotels open yeah <laughs> i'm like okay let's let's talk in a few years from now and see how many of those come to fruition so but it is meant to be a brand i think it was conceived if you know if you recall i um concepted what's now tommy and arlo and so i've been playing with the sort of high-end limited service space you know sort of smaller room high design deep public space concepts in a while. And I think civilians kind of the 2.0 of that. And, you know, our goal is to provide accessible luxury for, for a more youthful consumer and, you know, creating petite rooms, but really of the finish almost of what you would have in, in a traditional lifestyle hotel and same with the public spaces. So it's, it's one step in the ascension into the luxury market. And I think that's, that's an area where there's a lot of room for growth in the, you know, in, in, in the hotel world. And so I find that exciting. And I think it's a good place for, for a beta to be in New York city. Um, and, you know, they're, they're in the future, you know, I have different concepts of different components. I want to integrate when I have a little bit more spatial room of, of public space of co-working components and, and other things. I think, you know, technology is playing a part in this and the check-in procedure and booking procedure and communication. And it's also reinterpreting what the guest experience is. Like we're giving guests the opportunity to provide what's 
to decide what's most important to them when they book. You know, is it, is it the basic room experience? Is it a slightly elevated one? You know, how much housekeeping? Do you want a mini bar drop? You know, what what's what is it that you care about, right? And and you know, sort of using slightly like almost like an airline model, you know, but more personalized in providing a very clear distinction within the same framework of how you can curate your own experience. And, and I, you know, I think that's exciting. It'll, it'll evolve, you know, as the space is open and as we go into 2.0 and as the tech keeps changing. Um, but that's where the future is. I think the future in, in the kinds of hotels that you cover and we talk about is in two places. I think it's in the real luxury market. And I think it's in this reinterpreted accessible luxury market. That's, we're going to replace a lot of the flag mid-price concepts like Marriott Courtyards and things like that. Because at that price point, we can give a better, we can give better experience to guests. And you're seeing it already with some of the other brands like Moxie's in that space a little bit and, you know, some other brands. Um, but we do think that, you know, that's probably the territory globally that needs the most product, right? right. Whereas, kind of the four-star, four-and-a-half-star product is, is quite crowded. Super luxe and, and kind of this accessible luxury mid-price market is the best place to be. And so hospitality is always known to be behind the times with technology. How are you, how are you trying to stay ahead of it, right? Like, so it's, it's very, very mobile check-in. It's like you said, like everyone gets to choose everything, which is super exciting um, and almost like that airline model. But how are you... Is it a big learning curve to bring it in? You know, was that hard to kind of get set up or do you think, you know, it's it, it's easier now? Because I feel like hotels take, what, five years to get built. By the time you start, you're already behind. And I'm just curious. Well, hotels are like notoriously slow to adapt to technology compared to other sectors. Right. I mean, like e-commerce and, you know, retail is just so far ahead of where, you know, hotels are. And part of that's an integration issue. Part of that is fear issue of, you know, taking away the personalization with verbal communication. But, you know, I think it's getting there. And I think the reason why it's getting there is not because the hotels are on the forefront. It's because the consumers operate that way, right? That's how they do everything else, right? Between Amazon and online shopping and, you know, their air travel and, you know, they're getting used to this dexterity, you know, using mobile devices and technology, whereas, um, so they're kind of want it. Like they think it's archaic to have to like go to a desk and check out of a hotel and spend, you know, however many minutes when you're late just to tell people that you're leaving. It's kind of ridiculous, right? At this point, like a little bit. So, you know, and, and I think the gate, so the guest is driving that desire to be more flexible. Yep. And why was this the right hotel? I know you wanted something in New York, New York is the right market to kind of test this in, but tell us a little bit about Civilian, its location and what you in collaborating with David Rockwell created for the city. Well, I think we needed, you know, it, it, it's meant to be, you know, I, I, when I started the project, I, I said, I wanted the brand to represent the democracy of style. I wanted to become a very all inclusive uh, product that, you know, different sectors of people could really appreciate at the same time. Whereas previously, I, I wouldn't say that my other hotels were exclusionary, but they were very hyper-focused on a particular market, right? So whether it's fashion or entertainment 
or you know, depending on where it was, like we, we really focused. And what I wanted to do here was provide a product that, first of all, even though it was geared towards young people, um, it was marketed towards young people, really anyone would feel comfortable staying, right? And, and, and I do think the psychology of the consumer is inherently young at the moment anyway. Like you market towards youth, whether you're, you know, not, you know, your 50s or 60s or whether you're in 20s and 30s, like you're kind of marketing the same way. And and I thought that the juxtaposition of like being at between Hell's Kitchen and the Theater District and the revitalization of New York created the greatest opportunity for a mass audience of all kinds, you know, from the, you know, Dutch backpacker to like the couple from the Midwest that wants to see Broadway to, you know, the LBGTQ community that, you know, is gravitating a lot towards um house kitchen you know creatives that are from the music industry there in times square it just was a wide breath and i think it was a great place to be a beta for this brand concept and you know it was great to work with david and i think one of the things that david brought to the table and opened my eyes to was you know I, i've had the opportunity to immerse myself in the entertainment industry and in the fashion world because of other projects i've never had the opportunity to immerse myself in the theater world and he's really been the conduit to bringing that culture into this particular location. And I've always liked my hotels to be hyper-local in its voice to particularly in the public spaces to the guests. And I think, he, you know, bringing in that, that the theater community, bringing in the art collection from that are, you know, really, really interesting. Um, and I think unique and, and I think just as a spectacle is, is provides a lot of value as opposed to just doing a nice hotel. Um, is been immensely useful and, and very educating, very educational to me because I, I just I find it fascinating and you know it's exciting to me to say you know what maybe we can provide the new go to place for that community in the way that sort of Joe Allen's used to be and some of the other spots of the sixties and seventies and we could do it for the next gen because you know Broadway's changing too you know you've got your dear Evan Hansen's and you got your Hamiltons and you know so there's components of um, crossover between you know traditional music industry and film, and so there's a lot of in intellectual capital to mine there to create a better experience for the guest. Yeah, and I know you don't want to have a list of 21 places that you're moving the brand to, but would you stay? You know, what would you if this is successful and you do continue civilians? Do you see them in other major markets? Are you looking at other you know kind of second or third tier markets? Wh where would you? In a well, I do world. think it's a it's a city product. Yep. I think it's a city hotel, right? And and for that, I, I'm going to say major cities with a caveat. Major cities today are very different than they were ten years ago. Major cities in the U.S. were three, right? Like two, actually, right? Two and a half. And now it's you know a plethora of you know interesting places that you know young people are moving to, tech industry is moving to. And so there's a lot of, of, of cities that were not on the lifestyle map maybe a decade ago that are today. Um, you know, and, and I think hopefully ultimately internationally in a few cities as well. So, you know, I don't want to get too ahead of myself. You know, we're negotiating one or two other locations now. And, you know, you, you, you build a brand one by one, right? And then all of a sudden it, it explodes, right? So, but right now it's about making this one work and then potentially you know the next one and then those are the building blocks and then you know everything kind of grows from there yeah 
what's it like to start again? You know, like you've built so many things along your career. How is it to go through this process again? Um, it's great. I mean, look, it's when I was uh, interviewing actually Ian Schrager for the guest edited edition of yours that I did a few years ago. You know, I asked him, I'm like, you know, do you still get excited about what you're doing? And, you know, like, what do you think? He's like, look, you know, it's what I love to do. You know, I don't love to play golf. I don't like this is my passion. And I like the challenge of having to reinvent myself. And I like the challenge of, you know, being in the, in the trenches. And, you know, it really kind of made me feel um, not like an oddball for, you know, kind of just being like, look, this is what I like to do. And I'm not sure exactly where the path is going to go, but it's going to go forward, right? And, you know, at, at whatever pace or speed or direction, you know, may evolve over time. But, you know, at the end of the day, uh, you know, I'm, I'm of a, a certain breed that loves what they do. And, you know, I take the, the negative parts of it, you know, in stride. And, and you know, and I, I think that everything I've done till now, is just one chapter, right? I think the next chapter, and, and I put this challenge on myself a little bit, you know, hopefully it outshines the first one, but it should at least um, be the, the the natural progression from the first one. And you mentioned this, you know, lower tier that you're working on and then the ultra luxury that you think is um, right for development. What do you see as that definition of luxury? What do you think is missing or where do you think that is evolving to that ultra luxury right now? You know, look, luxury is changing all the time, right? And I think it's been like that probably for the last few years where you've seen some individual hotels kind of take the rate leadership and the luxury definition in certain markets. And now you're seeing some of the traditional luxury chains follow suit. So like, you know, if you look at some of the new Four Seasons, like they're bringing in designers that work came from the lifestyle world, and they're bringing in branded food and beverage components. Like, so they're all taking cues from that world. But at its core, um, it, you know, luxury is just more casual, right? And and I think people want control over their environment. I think they want less of a sanitized script in its service culture. I think they want more flexibility right and, and in a certain way you're taking more cues from the residential community right so they want to think that whether if it's in new york that they're staying and they're you know great soho loft or you know if it's in miami that you know they're staying and you know the equivalent of that on the beach and um, it, it, it's i think they want to take some of the formality out of the traditional luxury i think they want a more innovative and tasteful aesthetic and you know kind of to end the traditional like room cube and and aesthetic that the luxury chains have like been using for a very long time uh and kind of rethinking locations as well like you know i don't think they're always you know you know you have in new york city you've got a a, a rich reserve opening in nomad which never would have happened you know 10 years ago and you know you have a uh, four seasons in surfside and you know in miami and you know i think globally when you look at like what Cheval Blanc and, you know, Belmont and Rosewood, you know, they're, they're trying to move outside the box a little bit. And, and I think that's exciting, but there's also room for the individual to still have like an ownership there. 
uh, and and create something that pushes the boundaries and you know particularly in resort environments and and remote locations uh, i think covid pushed the world to really appreciate drive time kind of remote locations but also relatively accessible you know travel to thing in whether it be the caribbean or whether it be mexico that is really immersive right yeah. whether it's it's beach or whether it's mountain so uh, you're going to see tremendous growth in experiential um luxury that way i mean you're seeing it like the change with trains and you're seeing it with kind of more kind of uh upstate new york with more things happening and, it, and you'll see the same in, in in northern california you'll see this model of you know these remote locations becoming quite active and part of that when you get into the business side of it is there's going to be a residential component layered into that right and that's going to be a big thing where like your second or your third home is going to be a part of some kind of compound of luxury of, of luxury resort um and that's i think where the business of, of of luxury is going plus i think what you look at brands like soho house which are not traditional luxury but i think they're doing an interesting job of branching into other lifestyle areas like um furniture and accessories and you know things that really translate hospitality into your home which i think other brands are going to follow suit uh, which is great right because we all want to take a little bit of that special experience home with us right i'm not sure we want to design our homes exactly like you know the hotel room we stayed in or the lobby we were just in but you know one piece of it is interesting and gives another aspect to how these brands can kind of like set their reach out because it's not going to be hey i'm acquiring enough points so therefore i'm going to stay at right. this place it's going to be i i want to feel connectivity to this lifestyle yeah i know your homes have been featured in many publications but are they similar to your hotels or very different um i think there are components of it for sure you know you know they start um from you know a lot of you know stuff that I did for my homes were you know started in 1950s 60s and, and early 70s um, iconic furniture designers and architects um, I think while some of the hotels don't necessarily translate that as literally there's definitely components of that color palette um, of certain you know iconic furniture pieces that I think are like you know just wonderful to have in sort of any environment um, you know, there's there's a lot to be learned from that. And, you know, but then again, there are other projects that I've done, like Beekman, that, you know, were more turn of the century into the 1920s. And yet there were, you know, components of Jagadne and, you know, other period designers that haven't been in my home. So I think the process of breaking it down is very much, using my homes as a lab to do that is is very much useful, like in the commercial projects. And, le and, le and less expensive to experiment it's going to become my problem right? <laughs> on a smaller scale versus <laughs> a massive lobby right um what's one thing that people might not know about you hmm. one thing that people might not know about me you know i'm fairly an open book i'll tell you a couple things i shouldn't be saying one is despite my 
putting myself out there as a, you know, somewhat of a culinary expert and telling people like these exotic sushi dishes to order, I actually have the palate of like a 12 year old boy. Like I eat, you know, pretty much like your kids probably do for the most part. <laughs> right. So that's, that's one thing. Um, and though I can appreciate music a lot, um, I don't dance at all. You know, when I was a young man going to clubs for the first time, there was a very famous nightclub guy in New York, and I'll leave his name out of it. He pulled me aside because he thought I had a future in this business. He said, let me tell you something. We don't dance. And we act as if we don't even hear the music. We have perfect conversations as if the music is just going on. Now, that is completely not any kind of advice I would give anybody today because it's silly. But it just got slammed into my head as that was the cool thing to do as a teenager. And I have not been able to, you know, kind of get out of that rhythm. So maybe as part of my next evolution, I will take some flamingo or something just yeah. to, to break out of that mode. Or at least a little sway, something. <laughs> well, yeah, the the banquet sway is is a you know comes with the comes with the territory, but we need something with a little more flamboyance. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Add that to your next chapter. I love it. Um, okay, so we I could talk to you forever, but with for the sake of time, we always end this pod with the title of the podcast. So, what has been your greatest lesson or lessons learned along the way? You know, I think there's a lot. You know, it's hard to say. You know, look, in the end, it's a business with very sharp elbows. You know, I think you talk about the aesthetic portion of it, but to really go for someone who's really entering it and saying, "Hey, I want to accomplish." you know, something, whether it's in the restaurant field or in the hotel field, um, from scratch, um, it is a hard business. It is fused with all of the components that make people act aggressively, money, ego, you know, degree of fame. There's an underlying current of sexuality to it. I mean, it's very, what makes it exciting is what makes it explosive. So, you know, my, my kind of take on it is I wouldn't, change anything and have done anything different but you don't go into it being naive but and at the same time temper that pessimism with real passion for the stuff that we're talking about about brand and about aesthetic because in the end you have to keep your artistic integrity and balance it with your business plan because if you don't you'll just hate what you're doing. Like the old things that I've regretted in my career have always been when I've compromised too much to appease the situation and it wasn't the best it could be, right? And, or at least it wasn't my subjective vision of what the best it could be. So I think hold true to your vision, um, but be prepared for a rocky road. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. It was so good to see my you. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to Hospitality Designs, What I've Learned. If you like what you've heard, subscribe and review us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find full episodes and transcripts at hospitalitydesign.com.